0: Hello and welcome to the February edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this programme.
1: I'm Kate Fulton. I'll be tackling faith in lockdown. That very topic has inspired a talk of the same name by Dr Miri Freud-Kandel and it's going to be held on Monday the 8th of February at JW3.
2: I'm Tony Honigberg and I'll be talking to one of this year's Junior Bake Off contestants, Zach Cohen. He'll be telling me all about his baking skills and who influenced him.
3: I'm John Kay. Margate Hebrew Congregation's building from the 1920s has been saved thanks to a fundraising campaign. I'll be finding out what's next for the 100-year-old site.
0: And as if all of that isn't enough, we'll have a rather delicious-sounding idea, courtesy of our Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, in time for Purim. And our rabbinic thought for the month comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London Mizrachi Synagogue.
4: But before all that, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. The chief rabbi has strongly condemned a wedding that took place at a Haredi girls' school in Hackney, which around 400 people attended in a flagrant breach of COVID-19 regulations. It was broken up by police. Rabbi Mervis wrote on Twitter that the event at Yosodi Hatorah Senior School was a shameful desecration and that it was abhorred by the overwhelming majority of the Jewish community. Hackney Council is investigating and has spoken to the school's chairman of governors, while the local mayor, Philip Glanville, said he was deeply disappointed that such events are still happening in Hackney and Stamford Hill, despite the very grave pandemic situation. In Israel, the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine is proving to be 92% effective in a study done by Maccabi Healthcare Services. Out of 163,000 Israelis who were vaccinated, just 31 were diagnosed with COVID-19 during their initial 10 days of full-strength protection. In their clinical trials, Pfizer had reported that effectiveness achieved was 95%. A leading vaccine statistics analyst said that 92% was very good news. And the Israeli co-founder of a nasal spray, which kills the virus that causes COVID-19, says she believes it will be a game-changer in the fight against the disease. Dr Gilly Regeff, who lives in Canada, said that trials showed that people who used what she called a hand sanitizer for the nose did not get infected. The first UK clinical trials of the spray begin shortly. Prince Charles and his wife Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, joined a number of public figures to light a commemorative candle to mark Holocaust Memorial Day 2021. The prince, who is patron of the trust, said, as the last generation of living witnesses tragically pass from this world, the task of bearing witness falls to us. The theme this year was, be the light in the darkness. Rachel Riley has won her libel case against a blogger who said she was a serial abuser. The Countdown star had been accused of encouraging online harassment of a 16-year-old sympathetic to Jeremy Corbyn, who was known only as Rose. The blogger, Mike Sivier, claimed Miss Riley had cold-shouldered the teenager, which, he said, led to her receiving death threats. A High Court judge ruled in Miss Riley's favour and said it was self-evident that her main concern was anti-Semitism in general. And finally, the legendary US talk show host Larry King has died at the age of 87. He had a number of health issues and had been diagnosed with coronavirus. Tributes poured in for the man called a giant of broadcasting, who presented his CNN show Larry King Live for 25 years.
0: Viv, thank you very much.
4: You're listening to The
1: Jewish Views, in association with JW3. Now there is no denying that the pandemic has changed many aspects of our lives. Perhaps one that has really seen a shift either for or against is that of faith. That's the topic that has inspired a forthcoming JW3 event by our next guest. Dr. Miri Freud-Kandel will hold a talk on Monday, the 8th of February entitled Faith in Lockdown, Building Blocks to a Contemporary Jewish Theology. I'm pleased to say that Dr. Kandel joins me now. Tell us a bit about your background, who you are, and and, and why you're speaking about this subject.
5: My background, I'm a university lecturer in Oxford in um, theology. My field particularly is modern Judaism. Well, I have a book coming out that is looking at Louis Jacobs. The title is Louis Jacobs and the Quest for a Contemporary Jewish Theology. And so this question of contemporary Jewish theology is something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and working on. And that's the general background within which I came to think about the the contemporary, the specific contemporary context that we're all living through today, in which the effects of lockdown are leading to Jewish communities, well, all religious communities, really having radically to rethink how they try to reach out to their communities, particularly given that the nature of the global pandemic that we're all going through at the moment tends, certainly in some cases, to encourage a turn to religion, a turn to faith, to try and Mm. provide people with answers in a time of such uncertainty.
1: Yes, I remember um, it was back in March, sort of lockdown one, when... It well be said that he'd have something like five million people join him on the biggest congregation in history. So, so clearly, not everybody's being turned off and feeling angry. There are lots of people who are who are searching, I guess, for yeah,
5: exactly. I mean, I think in some ways we can see it as an almost binary response that people are either, as you say, angry and 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 challenging God and faith and 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 you know where is God in a world where all this just needless suffering is taking place. But the alternative response is one which is trying to seek out a faith-based answer. I mean I think there are numerous ways in which we can try to make sense of why there is that turn, but from the particular perspective of Jewish thought uh, it is a very well established mechanism within jewish theology to try to respond to periods of suffering by seeking some sort of faith based response suggesting that somewhere within despair there is the opportunity to find hope is that lack of uh, understanding we sort of in, in the judic judaic response
1: god turning his face away from us or is it a punishment or how do we in the Jewish community, what's our sort of answer to that question?
5: Oh, what's well, our given a,
1: answer? Uh, I'm not asking it to be What's, the, what's some of the given answers?
5: Yes, well, I, exactly. I mean, to suggest that there could be a single answer, I think, is, you know, I was going to say the, the classic Jewish response to any question is to offer at least two different suggestions. And contradictory. And, and the truth <laughs> Exactly, absolutely by its nature um, my favorite story especially related to to the jacob's context is of the castaway who get the jewish castaway who gets rescued from his desert island and is asked about the building on the other side of the island and he says that that's the synagogue he doesn't go to <laughs> so um sorry quite a diversion but the the, the reality is that The Jewish tradition offers a variety of different classical responses to try and make sense of suffering from from the idea of because of our sins. So so, so it's simply divine punishment, or we can think about divine providence, that this is part of a divine plan, but it lies beyond our understanding. And and yes, there's also notions about free will, so it's the hidden countenance of God, and therefore we should try to, it's really about empowering humans to think about how to respond to, to periods of suffering, and we can't blame God for them. That kind of misrepresents the the the, cha- the nature of the challenge. But actually, I think the real point I want to make is I'm less interested in the particular theological responses to the, the crisis of faith that, lockdown, not so much lockdown, but, but the general experience of a global pandemic creates. What I'm actually interested in thinking about are some of the broader challenges that face Jewish communities when we think firstly about the impact of closing synagogues. What that means, how does Judaism function in a contemporary context without access to synagogues? Because one of the key features in the development of modern Judaism has precisely been the importance, the centrality of synagogues in expressing and constructing notions of Jewish identity. So how do we deal with that? And then the second question is, what happens to religious authority in these contexts where either religious authorities are questioned for not coming up with the right sort of responses advising their communities of the importance of isolation staying in the home keeping safe and understanding that the primacy of looking you know saving people's lives over going to synagogue to pray or going to the yeshiva to study etc or the obverse challenging the religious authority of rabbis when they come up with rulings that people don't like. One of the, the most notable that I'm planning to, to think about in, in in my talk is, for example, the refusal to allow people to say kabbish in the virtual minyan, you know, at a time when the nature of this pandemic means, sadly, many people are losing relatives. The struggle to have recourse to traditional means of mourning is, is is particularly problematic, and there is a questioning of religious authority and the rabbinic response to to how to think about that and and offer uh, possibilities. Because mm. I think, just to not want you to sort of to dwell on on the sadness, but there have
1: been sadly a number of a number of funerals, and I know that the the purification procedures, the tahara procedure, isn't undertaken at the moment and i think that causes huge upset to people as well as the fact that they can't go to the to the to the graveside and they can't they can't be there to to sort of to fit into that normal process which really helps in the long run on
5: the road to to, to getting better getting I, out of it i i mean Absolutely. I mean, the power of Jewish mourning rituals is really quite remarkable when we analyse it from a sort of sociological perspective. Forget about the, the, the theological components. The power of the of, of, of the rituals associated with mourning in Judaism offers so much in helping Jews to think about these issues.
1: Well, on a, on a slightly lighter note, what is good has come out of this? What what sort of building blocks will be built towards a sort of something positive for the future?
5: Well, (laughs) the truth is, I think my talk has a lot more questions than answers, which is obviously a good theological approach to take in general terms. (laughs) Encourage thinking rather than necessarily offer a clear path ahead. But I think it's exactly as you mentioned from, from Archbishop Welby, What's been quite striking is that when people are at home with limited uh, options of what to do, one of the things they are doing increasingly is turning on and logging into online press opportunities, learning opportunities, etc. I mean you mentioned the the, the many logging in to, to, to the Archbishop of Canterbury, but also think about in the Jewish context, think about Limud and and, and the numbers that logged in to, 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 to this year's Limud festival well last year's Limud festival now. So there's massive potential and opportunity. The question, which I think is really something that I want to explore in my talk, is how and can religi- established religious institutions respond to that? Do they have the ability to be free thinking and creative enough to be able to build on on, on the creativity that they have been forced to bring in in response to lockdown? And what what will the future be for for Jewish communities moving forward? The talk is called Faith in
1: Lockdown, Building Blocks to a Contemporary Jewish Theology. It's on Monday, the 8th of February at 7.30pm. And we've been hearing about it from Dr. Miri Freud-Kandel. Dr. Miri, thank you for speaking to us on this edition of
5: The Jewish Views. Thanks very much.
2: You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. As Jews, we love our food. Indeed, whether it's Yom Tov, Shabbat, or just sitting at breakfast, discussing what we're going to have for lunch and dinner, food is very important. My guest, Zach Cohen, 13, from Leeds, also loves food especially baking, and was a contestant on this year's Junior Bake Off, and is here now to tell us who influenced him with his baking and why he wanted to be on Junior Bake Off. Zach, thank you very much for coming on The Jewish Views. Before we talk about Junior Bake Off, I understand that your baking skills come from your grandma, Leela. Tell me how she has influenced you, and what was the first thing you were allowed to bake?
6: Well... I remember from quite an early age going to her house and we would make cupcakes for birthdays and very simple like one layer cakes and I've just taken it from there basically and I've just learnt and I've googled and I've watched videos and I've just improved and now I'm teaching her a bit (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I just remember baking and I loved licking the spoon and stuff like you wouldn't do now but yeah, just the memories from when I was younger.
2: I used to love when my mother used to bake, my grandmother used to bake. My grandmother actually lived with us. I used to have arguments with my two brothers who was going to have the mixture out of the bowl when they'd finished ba- you know, putting yeah. stuff in the oven. Because the raw ingredients always taste so great, don't they?
6: I know, but then you look back now and like, who would want to eat raw eggs?
2: Absolutely. How do other members of your family, like your mum, dad, your brother, Jules, sister, Scarlett, influence your ideas?
6: Well, I kind of bounce off them. My sister also likes to bake. She also applied for the, for the show. And my brother, sometimes we do stuff together and I teach him stuff. And obviously one of my showstoppers on the show was dedicated to him, Jules. So, so, yeah.
2: Tell us what your showstopper was. I saw it, but maybe other people haven't seen it. Tell me what the showstopper was.
6: The first episode, Cake Day, we had to make a cupcake scene. And mine was basically inspired by my brother Jules and it was a big, it was a top-down view of the floor and it had jigsaws, it had a football and books, all the things that he likes to do. So that was my showstopper for that episode.
2: When you first started baking, how old were you when you were first allowed into the kitchen and work on your own?
6: Well, I started baking probably around six or seven but that was obviously not properly but when I was allowed into the kitchen on my own it was probably when I was 10 I got the hang of it using knives and the oven and the hob so not not about four years I've been doing it properly on my own.
2: I was quite impressed with yourself as well as others on the show because you're using sharp instruments you've got hot ovens cold fridges sprays and all other sorts of things food dyes and everything else that how young people are and how well trained you all were in using all these instruments what did you find about that?
6: Yeah I, I know there was quite a few young bakers and they're properly incredible for their age I wouldn't have been able to do that at my age but I think with baking you have to learn those basics as well, and that's the whole way of getting let into the kitchen, but it just takes skill and time and just going slowly really
2: and bravery, I think, with sharp knives yeah. and things and I, and I guess you'd like everybody else and and I like I love cooking I don't do any baking because so I, I, I just can't get my head around the baking because it's very much a science but cooking is is one thing and you do cut yourself and, and everything else you, yeah you can't help it what is your speciality
6: well I I love making bread so I make bagels every weekend and I do the challah on the Friday so I do love doing bread but I've recently been really into making cakes and I love decorating cakes and I've been using fondant and different butter creams and so yeah I would say bread is my speciality but I also really enjoy cakes and really any really anything
2: Do you like science?
6: Do I like science? Yeah. I think so.
2: Because baking and baking unlike I mean I do cooking which is not necessarily a science because I look what's in the cupboard and throw things together. But baking is definitely a science because if you get the ingredients slightly wrong, it doesn't work. So do you like science at school?
6: I do enjoy science. And I always remember my food tech teacher saying that baking is a science. Cooking is a hobby. Absolutely. And I remember that a lot because, you know, cooking, you can add a bit more tomatoes and take away some of the spices. But with baking, you have to have the flour right. You have to have the butter and the baking powder. So, yeah, I do enjoy science at school, yes.
2: Why did you want to be a contestant on Junior Bake Off?
6: So I remember finding out about it, and we found out about it, I think my mum told me, and that day I knew I wanted to apply. So I was in the car, I was saying, I'm going to apply as soon as I get home, and my mum was like, just go slow and let me read it through. And I remember going straight into my bedroom, getting out my phone, and rushing through the form, and I just applied. And I didn't even tell my mum until once I'd done it. And, yeah, she was a bit iffy, but, yeah.
2: That was my question. What was her reaction? Well, I mean, you say she was a bit iffy, but what happened after that? I mean, what did she say once she would got over the
6: initial shock? I think she was fine. She knew I was going to do it anyway. But I showed her what I'd done, even though it already had been finished. She was fine with it, but I never thought I'd get on on the show. so. Yeah.
2: When you did find out how excited were you?
6: I was so excited when I found out I remember we were we were on a holiday in Europe not in Europe in England because you couldn't go anywhere else we we're in Northumberland actually and I wanted to tell all my family and I was trying to call them but the wi-fi was so rubbish that I couldn't get in touch with family and so it was so funny but um we did and Everyone was so supportive and we were so over the moon and joyful. And it was honestly so exciting. It
2: must have been so exciting. I can just imagine. I I mean, as you can see, I'm in sort of the entertainment industry. And when you go on on an audition and you get the job, because you always expect, you come away from an audition, you think, I did so rubbish on that audition, I'll never get that. And the phone goes and you got the job. And the excitement is just phenomenal. It is. When you first got on the show and met the other contestants, what were your thoughts about them? Because there was quite a different range of ages.
6: Yes, there was. And I, I was a bit nervous because I didn't know if it would all be competition or would be friends. But actually, everyone is so nice from both heats, even though I didn't meet everyone. And I got there and we just instantly became friends over this love of baking, which was really nice.
2: I did notice on the show that if someone was struggling, the other contestants would go in and help. Stop baking time. Other contestants would get together and just try and help them out to try and finish off their their baking.
6: Yeah, and I think that's what bonded us so well, is we all looked after each other on the show and we didn't want anyone to go out. We didn't want anyone to do badly. So we just went and helped each other, yeah.
2: What was it like to meet Rav, Liam and Harry?
6: They are all so amazing, and Liam is really nice. He's exactly how I expected him to be cheerful and exciting. And Rav, but she's so kind, she's so nice, and she's so knowledgeable about her baking. And Harry is honestly, he's the funniest thing I've ever witnessed. And even when you're trying to bake and he's like annoying you. You're still laughing in your head, which, which I love about him.
2: Yeah. Did he actually drive you nuts with his jokes?
6: Sometimes he did. And I know a lot of the bakers, especially the younger ones, didn't get his jokes, which is really funny. But especially when you're trying to bake and he's kind of talking to you, it, it is a bit, it does put you off your game. But he's so nice.
2: He's a nice man. Yeah. When the show started to air, and we know it's now finished broadcasting. What did your friends and family think when they first saw you?
6: Honestly, my whole family was screaming. We (laughs) were like, we were all huddling around the TV. We'd make sure we'd be there exactly five minutes before. And we had it recorded on all of our devices. And I had so many lovely messages from friends and family. Honestly, people that I don't really keep in touch with. So many messages and it, it, it was really appreciated actually.
2: And obviously, you were not allowed to say anything before broadcast time. And even before the episodes came out, how difficult was that to keep a secret?
6: It was really hard. And I I just went day by day. And I think I'm so grateful that school, I was back at school because it kind of just gave me something else to think about. And yeah, I, I just powered through it and I... Every advert I saw, it was just giving me a glimpse of hope.
2: We know you got to the semi-finals, you got to episode 12 before being eliminated. And I read a lot of articles in papers that people had written and spoken about and said it was unfair that you made, on that one episode, your baking really wasn't up to the amazing standard that you should have been. How unfair do you think it was that you were eliminated?
6: I have seen a lot of messages and they are, honestly, they're really nice. But I do think at that time it was the right decision. I think I was the weakest person there. And especially in like finals week, you have to be your A-game every episode and one slip-up can have you gone. And it was just unfortunate that it was that day where I had a mistake and it le- led to me going. But I don't think it was unfair. But I think if it was ba- mainly judged on that day, it was fair for me to go.
2: How upset were you?
6: I, 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 I told myself in my head, if I go home, don't cry, don't cry, and I did cry, but it's so hard, especially when you put so much passion into it. And I was upset, and I remember, like going home, driving home, and but looking back in hindsight, all you've got to think about is how amazing you've done to get on the show, and how proud you should be. And you got to finals week, and you got two star bakers, so yeah.
2: If it's any consolation, I cried too. It's always sad, you know. And now you all got on very well, as we can see on the show, and for anybody that hasn't watched it, I suggest they go on to Channel 4 and watch it again. Have you kept in touch with any of them?
6: Yeah, I've kept in touch with all of them, actually. We have a big group chat, which which is nice. So it's nice to keep in touch, and, yeah, it's nice to speak to them.
2: Coming away from baking... Now, I know you do other things. I think you do some acting and you play bass guitar. You've got a, a band with your school friends, or some of your school friends. Yes. How's that going?
6: So, I mean, it has stopped because obviously COVID, but we, we still are doing stuff and we, we do stuff on after school sometimes and I play bass and I've actually recently picked up electric guitar and a bit of piano. So that's nice
2: multi-talented. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Well done with that. What career do you think you would like to do when you finally leave school, or go on to university? If you are, I don't know where you're going to go. But what do you think you would like to follow? What career?
6: I've been asked this question a lot, actually, and I have thought about it quite a bit. But it, I always come back to the same answer, which is I'm actually not sure. I I would like to do something using the creative mind, but I don't know what that is yet. So hopefully I like, it can lead me down the right path
2: whether it will be baking or whether it will be entertainment I guess yeah Zach thank you very much for coming on the Jewish Views it's been great talking to you and I wish you all the luck in the future with whatever career path you take and we hope to see you somewhere else another time maybe
6: thank you I love being on here
2: thank you
3: you're listening to the Jewish Views in association with JW3. A campaign to save Margate Hebrew congregations building in the Cliftonville area has been a success. Save Our Shul set out to raise £300,000 to prevent the historic synagogue from being sold off. To find out more about the future plans for the building, we're joined by musician Francesca Taberg, who's actively involved in the project. Francesca, you must be delighted.
7: yes I'm absolutely delighted we campaigned really hard for six weeks to raise awareness and show that we were serious about what and when I say we I'm talking about the four women who took on the kind of burden or challenge or whatever you want to call it to make this happen and that's myself Jan Ryan Lucy Lyons and Kate Gillespie all Margate residents and all of Jewish heritage yeah. I mean, we I, I always knew deep inside that we were going to do it. I can't explain how and why I knew that, but I knew it was going to happen. And then eventually we found an anonymous benefactor who bought it on our behalf. So we didn't actually buy it ourselves in the end. We only had three weeks really to raise the money. That just wasn't feasible.
3: Any particular reason it was four women who got together to save the shawl?
7: I don't think so. I think that that's just how it happened.
3: Were you um, friends anyway? You knew each other?
7: No, I knew one of them. Well, I knew I knew Jan. I'd worked with her on the Power of Women Festival that she helped set up in, in like the Thanet area. So I'd played at the festival in March, just before the lockdown. And I knew Lucy a little bit, but we hadn't ever hung out and I'd never met Kate. And we suddenly just met and we like, we're doing this. In the middle of a lockdown. It was pretty crazy.
3: And tell us about the synagogue itself and its history, because this wasn't a synagogue that was built necessarily because lots of people were moving to Margate at the time. It was to accommodate visitors who went on holiday there, wasn't it?
7: Yeah, a, a bit of both. It was it was the most popular Jewish destination in the south of England, I think, for holiday especially for Jewish communities from London and we're talking about kind of the late 1800s onwards so by 1928 there was need for a synagogue but people were praying in houses and then I'm not quite sure who paid for the building but the foundation stone was laid in 1928 and it was built and open in 1929 and it was you know it was built it's quite a big building it was built to house probably up to about 300 people. So it was a big congregation house, you know. It was a place of celebration.
3: But services stopped there, what, three or four years ago. And why did you actually set out, why do you feel it was important actually to save the building?
7: Several reasons. One is that it's just really sad that all of these kinds of buildings are, we're losing them, not just synagogues, all kinds of monumental and religious buildings that are beautiful and selfishly as a musician, they have incredible acoustics. Not all, not all of them do, but in the case of this type of synagogue, it's, it's built for a cappella singing, you know, it's built for music. There actually isn't any place like that in Margate to perform. So I was just like, Oh, I want to do a gig in there. But I, I have a relationship to old synagogues, you know, because I play klezmer music. I've performed at many synagogues around the UK I actually found out that like a distant relative built the what's called the Jesmond synagogue in Newcastle, like my second cousin's father. And yeah, I think like, it's just really important to preserve like the history, not, not to put it in a museum, but to remember it. And if it got knocked down and made into flats, which is possibly what would have happened, then you lose that history. So there's loads of reasons.
3: Now, it's going to be a cultural space, but will any parts of the synagogue still be there? So if you walked in to have a look at it, would you say, oh, this used to be a synagogue?
7: I think it will be obvious. I mean, first of all, there's sort of Stars of David in the architecture. And there's the dome, which is very Jewish as opposed to Christian. You know, that's one of the key signifiers that it's not wasn't a church. There's this amazing intact stained glass windows, which were actually paid for by some EU, I think, Jewish heritage funding quite recently, and that's the thing that I was first drawn to about the building when I first walked past. I thought, oh god, those are good quality stained glass, you know, like this place is not in bad nick. But the actually before the sale, the the Margate Hebrew Congregation completely stripped the building, and at first I sort of thought, why are they doing that? But the truth is, it, they needed to sell it as clean as possible. Do you know what I mean? So it could be taken on by whoever bought it and just they they washed their hands of it. You know, they wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to let it go. It was a financial burden for them. It wasn't open. So that everything's gone inside, literally everything. And it's actually been deconsecrated already by a rabbi in Ramsgate.
3: So the photos of that I've seen where you see the yes. ark, that's all gone, the ark.
7: I think the ark is still there, but it's obviously empty. They yes. had... For but the doors, tourists, doors, they've the
4: kept those. Doors. They've but the, uh,
7: the arc doors are there, the arc is there. That's it.
3: So, what do you hope to use it for? What sort of so, events?
7: So, I mean, so many things. Like I said, there's nothing. There's no space like that in Margate, or even in anywhere in Thanet actually. Concerts, workshops, talks, dance, exhibitions. We're going to put a cafe in there. Which is gonna serve food from like different kinds of food from the, the cultures that are represented in the area now. Because it's actually one of the most diverse areas in the UK, but it's also one of the most poor areas of the UK, exactly where the synagogue is, like those neighbouring streets. It's very, very poor. So we want it to be approachable, somewhere that everyone feels they can go and make use of. But we would I think we would like to have some Jewish events in there, but we can't I can't say right now what those will be. And and we don't want to be kind of beholden to any particular religious group because i think that's really complicated and it's not that helpful so if we have jewish events in there i can't even say we'd program those or if someone might approach us and say we'd really like to put on this event or this talk or this conference we you know we could be a place for conferences discussions or like if it's high holy days would we put on some kind of non-denominational event that jewish people could come to and just you know, I don't know yet, but we're not going to lose that. You know, it's, it's going to be obvious, the Jewish heritage, but we do want it to reflect what Margate is now and not only kind of dwell on the past. You know what I mean?
3: And what changes have there been in Margate itself, which, as you said, was a very popular holiday destination for many British Jews? What's it like now? How has it changed? Because it has changed, I think, in the last few years, isn't it?
7: It's changed a lot. First of all, lots of artists have been moving there, not just from London, but from all over the place, because it's cheaper. And it's actually a very beautiful place. You know, it's huge skies, massive beaches. And and, and actually, also great sh- food shops, if you know where to go, because because of all the different ethnic minorities that live around there as well. It it already has an artistic legacy, not just Tracy Emin, but like Kent has a rich arts community and than it has a really rich artist community, very quirky. But yeah, it's, it's become a hotspot. And I'd say since the lockdown, I've noticed, you know, it's it's impossible to find a flat around there. You know, it's so popular and people and actually the prices are going up really fast. Like the gentrification is happening quite quick. And for us, the, like getting hold of this synagogue building is about actually providing a place which isn't that, I mean, it's, it's regeneration, but it's not gentrification. And it's really important to focus on that and not just people coming in with loads of money, buying up all the houses, which is what's happening. And it's especially important to me as someone who's from Hackney, which is like the heart of gentrification. So I know about that. (laughs) I know what that feels like.
3: You've experienced that. Well, Francesca Teberg of the Save Our Shore campaign and now the newly formed Cliftonville Cultural Space. Thank you very much for talking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views and best of luck with the project. Hope it goes well.
7: Thank you. Thanks very much for having me.
0: You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now it's time for a rather delicious sounding idea courtesy of Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, what have you got for us this time, Denise?
8: I would like to share some culinary ideas for Purim 2021. Most Jewish holidays begin with blessings over candles and wine, aside from Hanukkah. Purim does not have this element. The Purim Suda festival meal serves as the hallmark of the holiday, and that is all about unity, family, and togetherness. The story is about triumphing over adversity. The plot of the Scroll of Esther itself hinges greatly on the community. This year, more than ever, we need to try and connect to achieve camaraderie, strength and an uplifting atmosphere to create the happy, joyous festival of which this is. Even if this means in a virtual way with Zoom and FaceTime. Festive food is always a good way to bring people together. And this year, I'd like to share options of a Persian feast. Party time at home in fancy dress with a vegetarian feast suitable for a king and queen. And vegetarian as this was how Queen Esther managed to keep kosher in the palace. Commencing with a mezze platter. The items that go on it are endless. I love to include two types of hummus to be enjoyed with bread Pitter bread sticks or homemade pitter or savoury crackers, fresh vegetables, cucumbers, peppers, fresh tomatoes, celery sticks or just a crudité selection, marinated vegetables to include artichokes, sun-dried tomatoes and olives and perhaps some nuts, a handful of roasted almonds, walnuts always add texture to the platter. And don't forget to include some bite-side food. Falafel, mini-carrot burgers and barackas are just delicious. The main course of layered aubergine bake, flavoured with cumin, garlic, sumac, coriander, oregano and cooked tomatoes, dates, feta cheese and honey, topped with some walnuts and garnished with sprigs of parsley. And of course, you must have Persian rice, the delicious crispy rice called Taktik. Taktik literally means bottom of the pot, and it refers to a beautiful pan fried rice that is fluffy on the inside with a golden crust at the bottom of the pot, laced with saffron and scented with orange zest. And to accompany this, you need to have a refreshing Persian salad, very similar to the Israeli salad. I like to include pomegranates, dill, mint, lime, green peppers to the chopped tomatoes and cucumbers. And for dessert, traditional Persian desserts might include saffron rice pudding, halva, baklava, rice custard, and very often they have pomegranates. And I will be serving my favourite chunky halva chocolate cake. Yes, I repeat that, delicious chunky halva chocolate cake. The recipe is on my website a must for all chocolate and halva lovers. So I want to leave you with an uplifting passion of food, good recipes and tasty ideas. Happy Purim and Chag Sameach. Best dishes,
0: Denise. <sighs> As ever, I'm salivating now. For more information on any of Denise's recipes, you can always go to Denise's website, which is jewishcookery.com. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Month. It comes courtesy of Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg
9: from New North London Mazorti Synagogue. I love Tu Bishvat, the new year for trees, and here's four reasons why. The first is the Torah and the Hebrew Bible itself. They have a deep respect for trees. It begins with the Garden of Eden, with the trees of life and the knowledge of good and evil. The Psalms, sing about trees, the branches dancing in the wind and the rustling of the leaves like the clapping of hands. And the book of Daniel has this remarkable description of the tree at the centre of the world, beneath which birds and animals find food and shelter. It's an image of our planet. The Bible is a tree lover's manual. Then in the Mishnah, Tractate Rosh Hashanah describes not just one new year, as we tend to think of Rosh Hashanah, but four, and the last in the list, but not the least, is Tu itself. It was a, first of all a date in the agricultural year for tithing, but it grew like trees themselves grow, into a celebration of land itself and everything that grows. Until modern times, we as Jews lived close to the earth, we appreciated plants and animals, farming and wildlife. They're all part of creation, for which we had a duty of care. These are relationships which we, as urban Jews, need to restore. And then my third reason is actual, real trees. Since childhood, I've loved them. I like to walk in woodlands and in forests, both by day and by night. I enjoy, in spring, the dark green depth of beech leaves, the pale white birch bark, the rough strong oaks, oaks with their brown buds, and in the autumn, the rowans with their red and orange berries. I love at this time of year the early catkins of alders, willow and hazel, and the sticky buds emerging on horse chestnuts soon. And by night, when I walk through the woods, I feel that the trees are speaking in a language of silent meditation. And my fourth reason, perhaps the most urgent, is the climate emergency. I want my children and their children, please God, and all young people across the globe to inherit an earth which is as beautiful, vibrant, sustaining and sustainable as that I was born into. I don't just want it. I know that the most important thing I can do and that it's an absolute duty is to try to work towards the future being green and safe for all life. Now, trees are not the whole of the answer because we also need to want less, use less and waste less. But trees are glorious and powerful and beautiful allies, and the world needs a million more of them. So that's why I love Tu Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan
0: Wittenberg of New North London Masorti Synagogue with our Rabbinic Thought for the Month. And that's it for this month's edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to all of our guests, Dr. Miri freud Kendall, Zach Cohen, Francesca Turberg, Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, and of course you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to say thank you to producer Sue Greenberg, who's worked tirelessly as always putting this programme together please do remember to subscribe to the show in your podcast application. That way you'll know when new episodes become available and you'll be able to listen to all previous episodes of The Jewish Views, should you so wish. For more information on any of the guests, you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. From me, Phil, Dave, and the whole team, including Tony Honigberg, Clive Roslin, John Kay, and Kate Fulton, we hope that you will join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.